Next week is do not murder. What do you say? What do you say on that, right? <laughs> so just pray for me as I do these things. But um, let, me, let me pray for us as we get into this. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your presence, your word, your spirit, uh, your pursuit of us despite our rebellion against you. We thank you that we have an all-powerful God where the darkness does tremble before you, but you do not wield your power in a way that is destructive. But you use your authority and power to bring life. And we, we are very, very grateful for that. We pray that you would teach us something this morning. Every single one of us, old and young, something that we have to do in our relationships. Address those things in our hearts as we listen to these words and we come at the end to sort of have a moment of confession that you would dislodge those things in us that are not worthy of your name and that are destructive in our relationships. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. So God, obviously I think we can all agree that God cares about the family unit, right? And that loving your neighbor includes honoring your parents. Um, as Jesus said, you know, love God and love your neighbor, right? The Ten Commandments now transition from the first half of the list, right? The, the first half of Jesus' answer to that scribe in Mark chapter 12, if you remember it, uh, to the second half, the second list. Remember Jesus' answer in Mark 12 to that scribe, was he, he asked him the question, of all the commandments, which is the most important, right? And his answer broke down the Ten Commandments into two lists. The first four deal with how we live in relationship with God, and the second six, uh, how we deal with relationships with each, with, with each other. And so when we focus on living our lives in such a way that we obey these commandments, uh, then we show God and we show the world where our priorities really lie, in loving God and in loving others. Uh, God wants our love. He wants our devotion. He wants our worship. It's not because he's a megalomaniac, but because he's deserving of it. And it's actually good for creation to do that to the creator. And he also cares about how we treat each other, right? Um, and he demonstrates this through these next six commandments that we're going to get into in the coming weeks. By the way, the la the, there's another guest preacher because Kim and I are going away for two weeks in August. And he's preaching on the two best ones. And I'm like, oh, wish I was going away two different two weeks. But anyway, um, but uh, God understands that how we act in the world uh, starts in the home. I think the family unit is very important. God cares about the family unit. He, how parents and how children and how spouses interact with one another. Um, we should always, I, I believe, we should always maturely resist outside control and negative influences, cultural influences on our children and family since the family unit is the incubator for faith and for character. Um, where... This is where our witness shines, you know, sort of brightest throughout the, uh, the whole opus of our lives that we create. And we, we have to remember, the, too, that strains of familial sin uh, can be broken in Christ. I think we have to remember that, that newness can occur in Christ, that God can redeem even a bad past, a bad family past, setting the future of a person 
in, in a new direction. And we see that in our families. When, when our family members start to come to Christ, there's a change in how we operate as a family. In Christ, we are not bound by that past. Negative family patterns need not govern us over time, right? Even if our upbringing was done badly, all right, um, we can build a family that is reflective of God and healthy in many ways. My first question when you hear, honor your father and mother, is I'm sure somebody's going to ask me, well, what if my mother and father were horrible people, right? That's a logical question. The fifth commandment is found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, and it says simply, honor your father and mother, honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord is giving you, the Lord your God is giving you. In, in Hebrew, the word honor means heavy or weighty, right? Like it has some meat to it, right? It's, it's the same in the same family, and it's almost identical to the Hebrew word for glory, right? So we are called in our lives as believers to glorify God, which means that we live a life that reflects well on God and points to him in our lives, giving him the credit that he is due. And when the Bible tells us to honor our parents, it means we live our lives in such a way that it reflects well on them. Now, I want to stop there and say that this, this message is not for just young people in the crowd, like my daughter who's here today, uh, or anybody else. It's, it's for all of us, right? And we'll, you'll see that by the end of this sermon. God wants us to honor our Heavenly Father by glorifying Him through our life, through our choices, how we live. And He wants us to honor our earthly parents by living in such a way that, that, that gives Him glory, right? In, in many ways, if you live a life of love, then you will automatically honor your parents. It's sort of just love God, love others. Simple as that, you will honor your parents. Consider 1 Corinthians 13, the, the love passage. Verses 4 through 7 say, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Ooh, that's a hard one, isn't it? Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Meditate on that this week. I think it will change your life. And you apply that lifestyle and people will speak highly of your parents, wouldn't they? If you're patient, kind, you're, you're not rude, you're, you're, you avoid jealousy, you're not boastful, uh, you're not proud, you aren't irritable. Uh, you keep no record of wrongs against you. You rejoice over truth. You, you never give up on somebody. You know, you, you never lose faith. You're always hopeful. You have endurance in life and in relationships. You'll be living a life which reflects well on parents and honors them well. But notice then, honoring father and mother, and this is probably the most important thing that we'll say today, honoring your father and mother is not about them. It's not about mom and dad, right? It's about your character and your development in Christ. It, honoring parents honors Christ in your life. And this is tricky, as I said, when you have abusive or manipulative parents. It's important to read that command 
as it's written or as it's given, that God doesn't say to do whatever your parents tell you. That's not, that's not, the, that's not the message here. Uh, he doesn't command blind obedience. God doesn't say make your parents proud by living up to all of their standards and all of their expectations, right? The command is simply to honor your father and, your, and honor your mother. More about you than about them, right? You remember in the movie, maybe I'm dating myself, this came out when I was like, I think it was in high school or no, even probably before that, but uh, the movie The Breakfast Club, Andy ends up in this all-day detention, if you've ever seen the movie, for attacking and beating up this other guy, this other student in the locker room. And in the movie, he reveals that, you know, he did it because of the pressure that he feels from his father to be number one in everything, right, in sports and all this kind of stuff. And he sees this guy in the locker room, and he smells weakness on this guy, and he just attacks. He just felt compelled to attack this guy in order to make his father proud. It's kind of evil, isn't it? And oddly, that was not honoring of his father, although his father probably would approve and may have liked what he did and even respected what he did because his father seemed to be a pretty mean, evil guy. So it wasn't honoring his father, even though his father may have agreed with it. That's what we have to remember today. And today, I think that we, we would all agree that many are living out of victimhood, right? Like Andy first does, you know, bringing about strife in all of our relationships. Blaming our past and our upbringing, pointing to families and parents who have failed us, justifying our own bad behavior on what's been done to us in the past. But God seems to direct his people away from such immature behavior and immature thinking through personal responsibility for our own words, our own actions, and even our own thoughts. The the things that nobody ever sees about us. He calls us to account for all the things that we have done, even in what we think. And what we think drives what we do, right? But right now, today, many live by this false axiom, follow your heart. By the way, that's the worst advice anybody could ever give you. Do never follow your own heart. Bad, bad advice. The problem is because our sinful human hearts are terrible guides. They lead us into places that we should not go. Not all the time, but quite often. People currently place their emotion and the, above logic and, and above rationale. In our world today, personal, individual desire and emotion trump truth. I'm always afraid these days to use, even use the word trump outside of the person trump. <laughs> trump. I'm not making any statements. Trump's truth, right? <laughs> but increasingly, it's seen that it doesn't matter what is true any longer, only what I want or only what you want. But in Christ filled with the Spirit and led by His Holy Word, His revealed Word to us, we gain a self-control over our bodies and even a self-control over our thinkings, our thinking and our emotions. An emotion along with the thoughts and desires which guide them are to be taken all captive to Christ, all directed by Christ. That takes work, doesn't it? 
It says if we lead our emotions by the hand and our desires by the hand of Jesus and we allow him to order them rightly and put them into perspective, they're not so big anymore. He locks them down in the place that they should be and they in turn become healthy instead of running destructively free. And we see this, like this destruction all around us. People just operating out of sheer emotion. Victimhood does not do anyone any good, either the person living out of it or the people surrounding them. It is a horrifyingly destructive place or or way to live. But we forget that it's Jesus that gives us our value and our dignity. It's only Jesus that gives our true value and dignity. We are new creations in him, right? Now, let me say, we may not be worthy of him. We may not even be worthy of his attention, and I'm a firm believer in that. But we are, for some strange reason, of great value to him. Praise God we are, right? The one simple truth that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? That whoever would believe in him would not die, not perish, but have eternal life in him. That speaks to our value in Christ. How great you you are in his eyes. And we have to remember that salvation is basically a legal matter. As if you were standing in front of the judge, right, and, and you've killed somebody out of your sheer anger. You just let your emotions go nuts and you, you killed somebody. And the judge says, you're on trial for murder. Do you have anything to say for yourself? And you, you reply, well, your honor, it's really not my fault, right? It's not my fault. If you grew up with my parents, by the way, my mom's here. She was a great mother, right? So I just want to make that clear. I'm speaking about other people, right? But if you grew up with my parents and their expectations, you would snap just like I did. What would the judge say? He'd say, your family's not on trial here. Your mom, your dad, they're not on trial. You are here on trial for the actions that you have committed, for what you've done. And then you reply, well, judge, it's really not my fault. You you don't understand. I'm just a product of my environment. And I have done a lot of good things, too. Let me tell you about all the good things that I've done. You'd start listening to those good things, and that judge is going to cut you off mid-sentence, and he's going to say, you are responsible for your own actions. No one can make you do anything. You are not on trial for all the good things that you've done in life. You are on trial right now for this one action, this murder. And then he'll sentence you to life or worse, if you're guilty. And that's what Paul says to us in Romans 6.23. He says, for the wages of sin is death. That word wages is important. For the wages of sin and death. In other words, you are being paid what you deserve for the actions that you have committed. You are being paid for it. Those wages are in the form of death for any small infraction against God's holy law. That's how high his standard is in the holy, you know, moral law of God. It's extremely high, so high that we can't reach it. One small lie, the wages of sin is death, right? One small lustful thought about a woman or a man, if you are a woman, on the train, you know, on the train going to work, Jesus says that is adultery. 
How many, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but we all know, we've all had those thoughts. That's the wages of sin is death. One hateful thought towards another, Jesus says, is murderous. It's murder. That's how high this standard is. We have to remember that God, God's holiness and our sin are like oil and water. They cannot coincide. They cannot exist together. Something had to be done about our sin in the world. And, and the good news is the rest of the verse, 623, which says, but, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the good news. You have to read the rest of the verse. And that is why the gospel is so unique, right? It's unlike any other spiritual construct. It's unlike any other religious thought out there. No other religion teaches this. This is what sets Christianity apart from all other things. And it's why Christianity is truth. Because Jesus said with his last breath on that cross to Telestai, right? And we translate that to say it's finished. But what it really means is the debt has been paid. It's a legal term. It, in business, the debt's been paid. That's what they would say. So we stand before the, ju- the father as the, as the judge, and, and he judges us on his moral law for one small sin. I lied one time. I stole a candy bar when I was a kid. That's theft, right? And one small sin, that's how high the standard is, he condemns me to hell. Because sin and holiness cannot coincide. But Jesus comes along, and he stands next to us, and he takes our place, and he says, Father, I've paid this fine. I have paid this fine. This guy can go. It's a legal term, right? This is legal language, and that is all due to his work on the cross. He took it all upon himself. Every little thing I've ever said, thought, or done, he's taken upon himself doesn't matter uh, if your parents were good or bad, evil or virtuous, loving or absent, rich or poor, kind or mean. None of that matters. You're not perfect either, and we all know that we tend to grow up to be our parents, don't we? doesn't matter. None of that matters. The command is to honor them with your life, with your words, with your thoughts. Not even necessarily to emulate them or follow them, or to be like them, even if it's only for the fact that one amorous moment between the two, you know, produced you, that's fact enough to honor them. Just live in Christ is honoring them. It is wonderful on the other side of that coin to have good parents who walk with the Lord, who raise you well, who who listen to you, who treat you as you should be, right? But it's not necessary in order to fulfill this commandment. It's not about them. It is about you. We can sit by blaming others for our own choices and attitudes, but we all have to understand that we have to grow up in the faith as we grow old, right? We have to grow up as we grow old. And the good thing about that movie, The Breakfast Club, Andy finally realizes after talking it out with his buddies in detention how wrong his actions were and how wrong his father was in his expectations on his son. And he finally takes personal responsibility. i got to go rewatch that movie. But, and this raises the question, 
what do you do if you have bad parents who say to you, you're not honoring me because you're not doing what, what I want you to do, right? Well, if it's something that is unhealthy or if it's something that is sinful, then you stay true to the Lord and you say no to mom and dad, right? And you speak truth to them as well. You witness to them that you're seeking to live a life of integrity and virtue which reflects well on God and family because it's Jesus' name that you're in, you, you represent. And by doing so, you would be honoring your father and mother even though you're doing something that they may disagree with because honoring them is more about you walking well with the Lord, being a witness in word and deed across the board. The Apostle Paul expands upon this commandment You know, as all these sermons, we are trying to find a parallel passage in the New Testament to our commandments, which is found today in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. So he's restating that commandment, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it it may go well with you and that you may live a a long life on, on the earth. So there's some sort of a promise there to well-being in, in practicing this commandment and following this commandment. But Paul, I want you to know, recognizes that while the children are to obey their parents, parents, especially fathers, uh, are to treat their children well, as, well on the other side of that. So we can say a child is still responsible as they grow older for their own thought and actions in life, and they cannot blame others for their own choices, right? But how can a child really honor a parent who neglects their parental responsibilities? How will that child even know the importance of honoring their parent if the parents live without any sort of integrity in this life, right? without walking with Jesus themselves. Because a child does need modeling and direction. So although children don't get off the hook, you know, just due to bad or absent parenting, that's, that's not there. Parents also get trained in the Word of God as well with an expectation, expectation to parent in a healthy manner. God desires to see the whole family walking well, reflecting Him as a unit, because that is honoring to his name and it's best for all of us. So after reiterating the fifth commandment, Paul goes on to say in verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. How often do we as fathers do that to our children? Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now while the text says fathers, I think we can apply that to moms and dads, you know, for today's reading, because it's in view of those people, anyone in that household that has authority over the children should act in this way, right? So a paraphrase could be like, parents, don't hurt your children. Don't unnecessarily hurt your children. Instead, show them Christ. Show them Christ. Now, I would say children are fragile, but for all you anxiety-ridden folks out there, they're not as fragile as you might think. We are built with some deep resiliency in us. You know, even people that endure the Holocaust came out and made lives for themselves and became resilient, even past that horrific stuff, right? So we, our children do have a great resiliency about them. 
Yet it is also true, you know, at the same time, that their mental and emotional state is such that a thoughtless word or, or an action that is taken too forcefully or too strongly does have the potential to cause long-lasting emotional or spiritual or, you know, even physical damage. I was on the phone once translating from Indonesian to English with a police officer in uh, Philadelphia and an Indonesian woman, a Javanese lady, had, had hammered her son's, her baby's head against the wall just in a fit of stress and rage. And I don't think she was an evil person. I think she just was overcome. She didn't mean to do it, but she had hurt her child pretty badly. Those things happen, don't they? They really do. And we have to be careful as parents with the actions and the words we use towards our children. They are important. This is the place where you develop somebody most, you're, you're most influential over them, right? John Calvin stated the first half of this passage by saying, let them be fond, fondly cherished. Isn't that a nice way to say it? Let them be fondly cherished. If we want our children to grow up as they grow old in the faith, then we help them to fulfill this calling, including honoring their parents by showing them great love. Great encouragement and positive reinforcement as well as healthy, loving discipline for their good. Discipline is a loving thing. And this makes their job of honoring mom and dad all that much easier in their lives and let alone their own walk with Christ. Again, if children are to honor, are to honor their parents and obey this commandment, their parents have a responsibility to be raising them up in the faith. Christian parents are called to bring their children up in training and instruction of the Lord. And this is one area where parents may be failing in their duties. You've heard about people dropping their kids at church and then driving off for two hours, getting a free babysitting. That's one of the most evil things in the world I've ever heard. Sorry if you've done it. Anyway. But if the parent leaves it to the Sunday school teacher, right, to teach their children the faith then only an hour a week are they learning anything about following Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. And it's, they're not learning it from the people that they look to the most, their parents. And that is a problem. That is a big problem. It's a simple equation of mathematical influence, right? I love listening to Todd and Kristen and how Todd is a father, and Kristen as well as a mother, but... They, they spend time with their children having Bible studies and talking and praying together. It's just, just wonderful parenting. I'm not saying that you don't do that, but I hear it from them because we talk about it quite a bit. It's just wonderful parenting. The more they, but the more the kid sees and experiences of a thing, the more likely they're going to adopt that thing, right? Moms and dads' greatest contribution to their children is their parents' own personal intimacy, their own personal walk with Jesus, right? A child watches and listens to words and actions, but they intuitively pick up on intention and motivation, don't they? We can't hide it from our children. Do I really believe this stuff? Am I really walking with Jesus? Because my kid's going to sniff that out. They're going to sniff that out. If you want them to walk with Jesus, if you are concerned about that in life, you walk with Jesus. 
You invite them into the pro- that process of allowing them to observe your own convictions in, of faith in action. I have a friend who just sent me a link to a GoFundMe page where she is fighting pornography in our local school districts. And she, she, she appropriately covered up certain spots, but she showed some of the images and some of the text that is being taught to our kids in your schools. And I'm sorry, it is disgusting. And it's not the place that our kids get taught that. She is maturely, <laughs> and she's a firebrand. She is, whew. They, they're going to lose the fight. <laughs> if it's just her, they're going to lose the fight. I mean, she is. But I, I respect that. She's going at it because this is important. It's just disgusting what, what they're being taught. Often parents will say they want to let their children decide what they believe for themselves. What? What? I want to let my children decide what they believe for themselves. No. No, 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 no. Your pastor says no. Your pastor says no. You can disagree with me, but I'm right. I thought I was wrong once, but I was mistaken then, right? There are several problems with this train of thought. First of all, your children are not blank slates. They are dry sponges, and they're going to soak up anything and everything they see, hear, and experience. They really are. So unless you are constantly showing them the blank slate and what they should be writing on it, then they're most likely going to adopt and, you know, some, your worldview, which may not be actually that good if you're doing that, or some sort of a blended worldview or whatever they see from their parents or on TV or hear on the radio or experience at school, and now we know what they're teaching at schools. The second problem, of course, with this isn't that, isn't it, it, that it's not what God expects of you as a parent. It's abdication of your parental leadership into which you have been called by the God of the universe. Parents are to lead. You're not friends. You're friendly with your children, but you're not friends. You are in the role of parent. They are in the role of a child. You are mom and da- or dad. When that baby popped out, so did your responsibility before a God of the universe over that child. Ephesians 6.4 is clear. There's a way that we're to bring up our children, and the specific target of that child rearing is that they know and they understand the better ways of Jesus in this world. We preach the gospel to to our kids, both in word and in how we live. We won't do it perfectly. But our kids will see that, right? They'll understand that. We're called to impart the faith to our children, and it makes life much easier for them to to live that life of honor before God and honor before us as we do that. God cares deeply about our families. He really does. He cares how the family interacts with itself and what it reflects to the world, right? And that's the point of this commandment. Not that children simply do what they're told. That's, not, that's what, not what it is. But that parents raise their children in the faith so that their children grow up, you know, that they're to live in a way that brings honor to mom and dad, but more so honor to God, honor to Christ, as well as making the whole family unit a positive witness to the world for Jesus. I'd like to end this story or end this this sermon uh, with a story. 
And it's called How Love Transformed My Father's Life. And it's by this woman named Kong Kaijun, if I say that correctly. And it's illustrated by her friend Nicole Chan, which you'll see a few of the pictures. Uh, it's a story of a woman who honored her father really well. And of a, bad, of a bad father made good in Christ. She says this. During this COVID-19 season, I felt God leading me to reach out to my family. Growing up, I knew my father to be a responsible man who provided for the family. However, he was also a very strict disciplinarian. Think about that verse. Don't unnecessarily hurt your children. And I had always been fearful of him. Because of that, we've never had a close or loving relationship as father and daughter. I've been praying for my father's salvation for 15 years. In the last few months, my father's work was badly affected by COVID-19, and he began to suffer from anxiety. He started to have breathing difficulties and insomnia and became frustrated. And the worst thing was that he would vent his anger at us, straining relationships in the family even further. This string of events affected me greatly. Though I've been praying for my father's salvation for 15 years, I felt helpless. The situation had not changed. I could only turn to God. While I was waiting on God one day, I felt him asking me, Kaijun, why don't you just cook your dad? Like, Kaijun, sorry, don't you like to cook for others? Why don't you cook for your father too? And my immediate reply was, my father won't eat it, and I'm scared to cook for him. But God was under, undeterred. He went on saying, you accompany others when you need to go for checkups, at, when they need to go for checkups at the hospital. You can bring your father to the doctor too to find the cause of his breathing difficulties. And God kept encouraging me to take that next step to care for my dad in practical ways. And I plucked up the courage to reach out to him, and I brought, brought him to see different doctors for his condition. I'd also initiate conversations with him. And each time we visited the doctor, I would cook a meal. He refused to eat them in the beginning. Ugh. Why would you do that to your daughter, right? But he began to look forward to them after a while and even gave me tips on how to cook better. <laughs> Again, why would you do that? Awkwardness dissipated, and we grew comfortable. After a while, I felt God leading me to take a big step of faith to invite my father to stay at my place so that I could take care of him. Up till then, my father's never stayed anywhere other than his own home. He's never even visited my house. So I was very surprised when he said yes. For 10 days, we ate, watched TV, and went to the market together. We had the chance to have conversations about his growing up years. We had heart-to-heart -heart talks. We cried and laughed together. This had never happened before. One day, she, he shared he wasn't a good son because he was not filial with his parents. He became so emotional that he broke down in tears. I took the opportunity to share the gospel with him, telling him that God is love, and he was so touched that he wanted to accept Christ. That night, my cousin and I, led my father to trust in Jesus. For the first time in my life, I laid hands on my father to pray for the Holy Spirit to fill and lead and heal him and grant him peace. And after praying, uh, we both wept. I told him this was a day I'd never forget. We were no longer strangers. The reconciliation with my father brought healing and peace to my heart. Since he became a Christian, my father's changed in so many ways. He smiles and talks naturally. 
He has a Bible which, he, which belonged to his grandmother or my grandmother. He reads it every day. He prays for the family every day. And he texted his elder brother to reconcile with him, putting aside years of hurt and resentment. The reconciliation with my father brought healing and peace to my heart. Not only did God work a miracle in my father's heart, he restored his health. He no longer struggles with insomnia and breathing. He can now sleep with ease. And one day, I saw, I saw my dad in his room, kneeling with his mother's Bible, praying and listening to a, to a worship song, and I was touched. The image will forever be etched in my heart because it shows how Jesus transformed my father's life completely and restored my relationship with him. My heart's filled with thanksgiving. I know this is all the work of the Holy Spirit, his grace upon my family. End of story. Great story. That's good honoring, right? She definitely honored her father and her mother. And he became a good father through Christ. And he began to honor the rest of his family. And you see how... how the, the healing of Christ, when Christ comes into the picture, when he's invited in to all of our stuff, everything just falls into place, right? Not perfect. We know that. But it does, to a great extent, fall into place. So here's the question, a few questions. Do you need to repent and begin to honor your parents well? Not that you have to agree with everything that they were or are, but do you need to be, begin to honor your parents well? Do you as a parent need to repent and begin to cherish your children? All of them, biological or otherwise, without favor. Do you need to love them well? Well, I would urge you, wherever you are, to take that step. It's not about them. It's about you. And it's about your influence on them. Right? And it's about what your family and your walk with Christ reflects to the world. A wonderful, loving God that went to the cross for us and how that changes us and transforms us into very loving, different people. So I would urge you to take that step. Let's take a, a moment now. We've, after every sermon, we've just taken a moment to pray into this, and, and I'm going to give you some time for silence so that you can sort of confess and unload it to the Lord, whatever, whatever he's brought to your mind today. So let me, let me start us out, and then I'll close us. Father, we come before your throne, and we know that these relationships are important, not just because we have a, a biological connection to somebody or a marriage connection to somebody or 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 anything like that, not because they just should be important, but because you created these things. You placed us in this unit. You placed us with these people. And this, that this, this unit, these people, myself, we reflect something. We should be reflecting something to the world around us. That we are not just witnesses by ourselves. That we are witnesses first as an individual, but we are also witnesses in our family, and then we are also witnesses as the larger body of Christ. I pray that you would bring to mind right now, Lord Jesus, those things that we need to confess to you, how we've treated others, and how we've not honored them well.